Also, to be honest, Helena Bonham Carter looked real good. She was she's a very beautiful pregnant lady. And congratulations yeah. to her for looking fabulous in a wheelchair in an airport. She still looked amazing. Oh, man. Fight Club. Sorry. Just I'm just going to put that out there. I don't have anything to say, but uh, it's all, yeah. all you said. to Nobody Knows Anything, a podcast where we mine old movies for new ideas. With me are Mike. Hey, all. And Brian. Hi, everybody. And I'm Leah. We have a special Halloween-themed episode as an addition to our 90s coming-of-age series, Beetlejuice. I should confess that this film was actually at the tail end of the 80s, 1988, but nothing like Halloween for breaking the rules. All right, Mike, what made you want to add this film in? Well, Brian came up with an idea of like a Halloween special and everything he picked involved like shit that would give me nightmares. And so Brian's suggesting like pretty much the goriest stuff you could possibly imagine that was going to get into my subconsciousness and I couldn't deal with it. So I just started thinking like, okay, what's a coming of age film that is also slightly on the, not horror necessarily, but the supernatural or something along those lines. And we'd already talked about Winona Ryder uh, with Reality Bites and I'm actually curious what Leah's take on another writer is in this film, but I saw her. That was the first movie I ever saw her in. I had an enormous crush on her because I was 10 when this movie came out and I saw it in the theater and I'm like, I don't know what kind of feelings I was having, but they were towards Winona Ryder. And I just, uh, I hadn't seen it in a long time and I was really curious uh, how it held up. Yeah. It's, you know, it's an interesting film because like there are some body horror elements to it. You know, there's some of the grotesque present, but it really isn't a horror film. And, um, you know, I would argue that it's it's really a fairy tale more than anything else. And um, the despite Mike's characterization of me as some sort of Japanese torture porn loving uh, horror movie thing, that's not accurate. I, I like things more of a Chinese or Korean torture porn. Yeah, Korean torture porn is the, where, where it's at. That's the one where you really. Yeah. No, I don't I don't like that stuff either. What I like is the where you verge into the weird supernatural and you can sort of like your, your reality filter gets bent. Right. And that's what I think uh, this fairy tales do really well too. I mean, fairy tales are scary <laughs> and, and there are moments of this that are actually still a little frightening despite it being super comedic. So, yeah, I was glad Mike picked it. I liked this choice too. It was, it was really fun to see it again after so long. Um, one thing I found really interesting was the opening, which I didn't remember that well from the first watch. And it's just striking to me this time how Tim Burton is downplaying the incredible hotness of Gina Davis and Alec Baldwin by having them dress in these awful outfits. I mean, we've got Gina Davis in some sort of Laura Ashley thing and Alec Baldwin looking like some L.L. Bean dad. And it's just a very strange choice. And I was curious how you felt about Tim Burton's choice to make these incredibly hot actors play these parts where they're just dressing like dweebs. Alec Baldwin looks like he's in normal human drag in this movie. Like, like you can just see it's like dad drag. You can see him coming through this, you know, and like every now and again, you're just like, what are those beautiful blue eyes doing in this outfit? The, it was funny because I'd forgotten he was in it. Like that's how effective it was in 
doing it. I was like, no, no, he's the first time I know him is Hunt for Red October and everything. <laughs> that's where his life begins. You know, it's like, I think Burton really revels in the off-puttingness of that. Like by making really beautiful movie star quality level people try to appear normal. It's, it's unsettling. Actually. I don't think they ever look normal. I think they look stranger for it. I mean, he does that with Johnny Depp all the time, right? In the nineties, you know, he takes a pretty problematic guy now, but beautiful, you know, in nineties, beautiful man. And many, just like many beautiful people are problematic. We could just, we could still say he's pretty. Yeah. He's pretty. He was, yeah. The time capsule of it too. And, you know, sort of, undercuts that and yeah i also forgot alec baldwin was in this i also think of hunt for red october i also think about that scene in 30 rock where um what's his name uh, john ham is on it i don't know yep. if you remember this and he's in the zone where he's so beautiful people just do what he wants and alec baldwin shows a picture of himself from the early 90s and say and tina Fey's like oh my god i didn't know you were so wow <laughs> i mean he he is like you know the epitome of male beauty in the early 90s he's just kind of perfect and he's funny too. And um, yeah, it struck me as like, they're one of the main plot points here. That's really sort of, it's not even a main plot point, but it's underneath there. One of those minor themes is they're trying to conceive a child. Right. And they seem so desexualized that when they actually make the joke about conceiving a child again, I'm like, Oh, you two are married. You two, I would actually pay to watch this, but you know, they, uh, I, I wonder what the theme of that is, though, too. Why is Burton doing that? Why does he, Brian's pointing out he revels in it. Why do you think he does? I, I think it's really interesting, too, when you think of, so when I think of Alec Baldwin's really early work, I'm thinking of um, She's Having a Baby and Working Girl, both of which he's playing such a villain, and he's so sexy as a villain. So it also just really throws me here to see him as the good guy. I'm very confused. It just it feels disorienting in that way, too, which might have been something that Burton was thinking about when he put this cast together. I'm not sure. Um, But I do think in the beginning of the film, there's a lot of humor. And I'm curious how you felt about um, the humor in the beginning of the film, if you had kind of favorite moments or lines. For me, I think the humor really begins. I mean, it's cute beforehand when they die and. Catherine O'Hara shows up. That's when the movie sort of accelerates for me. It's just sort of this sort of quaint New England town. They're they're kind of an adorable couple. And then, you know, Catherine O'Hara comes in and she's just uh, she's just anarchy embodied. Right. She's just bringing chaos to it. She is on fire the entire time. You have these very staid couple, you know, they're charming, they're cutesy. And she just like she's throwing 100 miles per hour as soon as she comes in and she doesn't stop the entire time, which probably would be exhausting if this movie wasn't like so short. It's only 90 minutes or so. It's really quick. It's really economical. It just moves so quickly. And her moments, anything time she's on the screen, anytime she's dealing with Winona Ryder and you can sort of see her, her kind of disdain for her being a mother figure to her, uh, not even trying whatsoever, her disdain for her husband, her utter belief that she is a great artist throughout it too. She just, every, anytime she's on the shoes, she's, um, she's winning the movie. Yeah, I think so too. I, I, my, I don't actually think it's all that funny until um Catherine O'Hara and Glenn Shadick start doing their routine together and like I love him too I think Otho is actually kind of like the perfect foil 
for or or encourager enabler for her you know like that if it was just Catherine O'Hara and uh Jeffrey Jones you know just the husband you have that sort of dynamic of like harpy wife you know um weird yuppie stockbroker weirdo you know it's kind of thing going back and forth but having Otho there just (laughs) ramps it up a notch where he's just going around like when they start spray painting the walls and oh this has to be mauve and this you know like that part just I love it I don't know Uh, I love their whole look I also think Winona Ryder is bringing it as well too and you know just this sort of goth girl um, nobody understands me way, but just, you know, taking it up a notch too. She's dressed in funeral black the entire time. She's taking pictures. She also just feels like nobody understands her in such a way that, you know, it feels like the female version of Tim Burton as an adolescent, it seems like, or what Helena Bonham Carter is going to be like as a, you know, grown woman. Just, he has a type and I just love it. The veils got me. Like, it wasn't like, because... You know, there's lots of goth fashion and stuff that's super interesting or whatever. But like the fact that she was so committed, there's not just one veil. There are multiple veils, different veils that she wears throughout this thing. I was like, this is amazing. Although it did give me some some of like, wow, rich people (laughs) feels. I'm just like, your life is so hard. Yeah, I think. um, And Mike, you mentioned this earlier. I actually like Winona Ryder as long as Tim Burton is directing her. I I think there's something about that combination that is just magic because where she's overdramatic in a normal role, when she's actually asked to be overdramatic, she plays it down. There's just, there's just this kind of wry, sarcastic kind of level to her performance that just makes it. So from the very beginning, I'm on her team. I didn't have a crush on her like Mike <laughs> did never get over, you know, some of my dislike of her in other films, but as soon as she's in a Tim Burton film, you know, I love her in Edward Scissorhands also. I, I was kind of all in and like you both, I, Catherine O'Hara, I don't think we can talk enough about her performance in this movie. There's just so much to say. Nobody Knows Anything is hosted by Buzzsprout, the best site for up-and-coming podcasters. Buzzsprout makes it so easy to get started. You'll get a great-looking podcast website, audio players that are simple to use, and a host of great articles and tools. If you follow the link in the show notes and start a paid plan, you can get a $20 Amazon gift card. And of course, you'll be supporting us, your favorite show. So I want to bring up something that comes up very early in the film, which is this idea that you're going to get a guide to the afterlife. But if you do, it's going to be as dull as an instruction manual. And I just really love that idea. And I was really curious, Brian, how you felt about that, if that seems like a realistic take on what the afterlife might be like. Well, (laughs) the funny thing is um, that if you read the old grimoires, they're not that different, right? So if you're looking to summon up, you know, the 14th Prince of Hell or whatever, um, the grimoire usually starts with like these step-by-step instructions on the things you need to do in order to summon up this, you know, goat-headed toad beast. And it's usually stuff like clean your space, make this precisely designed geometrical figure, you know, like the, with the scene where he's like, oh, I didn't draw this, the handle on the door. Like 
that could be from the the like the the notebooks of a 16th century you know necromancer like it's the same shit where you're like oh i left <laughs> shit i gotta go get this particular plant and i i didn't get it from the store like but more but so you know there's some of that and if you read the old spiritualist handbooks too there's a lot of the same kind of thing so i think tim burton's actually having some legit fun with that genre one of the things this movie does really well is it puts forward the idea that the afterlife isn't that different from life right that it's still life and so the same patterns repeat themselves and show up and the same aggravations exist and life is life and I find that really charming and compelling. And I think that's really, I don't know. I think it's, I think it's probably kind of like that. If you know what the afterlife is like, hopefully with fewer waiting rooms like that, but like, you know, uh, it makes sense to me on some level. And, And then it allows it to reflect back on the film. So that like the whole idea that the living are haunting the dead, that the living are a curse on all these dead people who have to hang out. It destroys the, the separation between the natural and the supernatural, right? It just says it's all the natural. And I, I like that. I like that it also, you're never special in the, in the living or the dead. You're just another number and you're just annoying somebody else by your existence, whether it is, you know, the living or it is your caseworker in the afterlife who is so indifferent to you and just annoyed that you're causing her more trouble than she than you than she thinks you're worth. I hadn't I mean, that was only 10, so I hadn't seen anything like this. And I still don't think I've ever seen any film that looks like this in a way, too. It feels like, you know, John Updike merged with Salvador Dali at times. Right. It's just sort of the convergence of that. And I think the afterlife section where, you know, there's the football players and there's the waiting room and there's, you know, just this try to bureaucratic line is perfect. Right. It just encapsulates this idea that, you know, we're all taught we're kind of special in America, that we're going to go to heaven and we're going to be rewarded. Right. And it's other religions, too. We're going to be rewarded for our good deeds that happened in life. And Baldwin and Davis, I can't remember their names, the character names. Um, seem like very decent human beings who just like you don't drive under a covered bridge, right? That's that should be a rule we all live under. You look at them and you drive around. That's what the modern highway system is for. They seem like good people. They should be rewarded with heaven or whatever. But instead, they're just like, all right, this is your next step. You got to hang out here for 125 years. Suck it up. Well, and not only that, but it's a disadvantage, as we can see, to be a nice person, right? Because here they are in the afterlife and their whole goal is to get rid of these people. And it's clear that that's what they're supposed to do. They're supposed to clear their home for themselves and they're too nice to do it. And you've got all these people trying to tell them, you know, how to be mean, how to be scary. And so I thought that was hilarious to kind of take this idea that, you know, you're supposed to be a good person in your life and that's going to lead to a good afterlife and just mess with that. Yeah. <laughs> And just mess with that idea entirely and just be, you know, hey, it's it's a terrible thing if you're a nice person. It also gets allows you to do something that's really fun. Um, one of the things I've been interested in the whole coming of age stuff is like different family structures, right? And by the end of the movie, you actually get this sort of expanded family structure that's existing. Like because they're nice people who haunt the thing, haunt the house they can become Lydia's more caring caregivers by the end of the movie. And the 
adults that she's with can go back to being their own, their own weird selves as well, right? Like the the pressure to do everything in this one nuclear family couple thing is broken up. And so you have an expanded family that exists by the end simply by creating a situation where the dead can contribute, right? And, uh, you know, it's played for laughs. It's played for just, you know, a little quick fantasy. But, like, there's something there, even in a more serious sense about, you know, remembering the dead, keeping the story as a part of your family life. You know what I mean? Like, having these living or dead relatives or, or friends that can contribute to what it means to grow up in a house. Um, it's actually really lovely on that, on that way. And you, you, you know, but uh, it does also allow for some really funny scenes where Gina Davis is chewing out, you know, Beetlejuice. <laughs> it's also, I mean, that's subversions there from the beginning, right? Like you have the real estate broker pushing them to sell the house because they don't have any children, right? Like that they're not living up to the standard suburban Connecticut family structure. And if you don't live up to that, why are you wasting a perfectly good house in your childless couple? And over and over again, they're trying to subvert that sort of family life. Catherine O'Hara is never going to be a mom. Like she's never going to have, she doesn't have a maternal bone in her body. Right. Um, and that's fine. You know, she, she made her choices, but like Burton's keeps pushing against that until that end too, where they just end up in this structure that makes sense for them right you see writers happiness at the end right she's not happy throughout the film but the sense of like wonder and joy that comes when she gets basically possessed at the end and gets to dance you know with the ghosts is wonderful yeah i like i really like that mike i really like you know that's a good point that it starts from the jump of the film it's it's that critique is there and that's something I think Tim Burton's actually really good at through the course of his films is saying like, you know, the horror here is being trapped in a normal reality you can't get out of. And, you know, his message seems to be quite often with some creativity and kindness for the weirdness in, in each other, you can actually have a much better life. Like things can get better. Uh, it's interesting to think about Alec Baldwin's character as a sort of weird artist of his own right like this obsession with building models of the town is strange even even by like ll bean standards he's definitely model model railroad dad to a really high level he's not in some ways he shares some stuff with Catherine harris character right like this obsession over the things they make so i don't know but yeah i, I like this idea that we're coming around here that there's a deeper criticism that actually points to something good well, I think it's quite early for a celebration of an untraditional family. And, and given with Burton, it's got to be an extremely untraditional family. But, um, you know, this is 1988. This wasn't a time period we were seeing that kind of film. So it's it's just wonderful to see all the ways he was ahead of his time. Um, Brian, you mentioned the possession. So I have to bring up, of course, the biggest scene in this film, the Deo scene. So I was curious what it was like for you to watch it now after all this time and if it lived up to your memories of it. I loved the scene as a kid. Like just, I, it's funny because like, I didn't, I think this is actually how I was introduced to Harry Belafonte or it might've been like this or like um, maybe something on Sesame street. You know what I mean? Like it just wasn't something my folks were listening to in the house and I didn't see much. And 
I, I love Harry Belafonte. His music's fucking amazing. Like the, but like, so it was weird now to have more context and understand how weird it is for these strange New York yuppies to be singing Calypso. You know, the other, the other element of it is there. The, the horror on Catherine O'Hara's face as she cannot stop singing at this dinner party that she set up is so good. And like having Dick Cavett be there, like as a cameo is just, I don't know. It's perfect. I, I love the scene. I think it's, I think it's tremendous. I love the casting of both Cavett and Robert Goulet. Like <laughs> I was trying to, I, I'm still trying to figure out like, what is, why those two, right? But they're, I guess they're like suburban white heroes in some way right they're the dick cavett show robert goulet's music whatever they're just so bland right they're so vanilla they lack anything else and then you bring in harry belafonte and this song which is so fucking weird in so many ways right it's so but it's so memorable right where you know goulet and cavett are incredibly unmemorable I, I just love that contrast and you're right brian o'hare's face the entire time she is selling this thing is is spectacular. I she's just a genius. I, I don't know how she made herself look possessed in such a convincing way, right? Just the way her body is kind of taken over in the scene. I mean, it's just a, a masterclass in comedic acting here. It's just so beautiful to watch. And I think, of course, it's aided by the amazing costumes. And I think that you've already mentioned a couple things about the costumes. One of the things I love in watching her in this film is that I kept thinking about Moira Rose in Schitt's Creek and just how similar these characters were and just <laughs> how much she might have might have taken from this film. But there's a lot to say about the costumes. And you've touched on the wonderful veils of Winona Ryder. <laughs> but one of the things I thought was really interesting is there also seems to be a commentary here on New Yorkers. Like that they're already dressing in this absurd way. So let's just heighten it. Um, so that was something that really struck me this time around. But I was really curious what reactions you had to some of the other costumes besides Winona's obviously brilliant getup. This isn't a costume idea, but I noticed this at the end where Jones and O'Hara are sitting outside and they're both ginger, right? Like that's a pretty specific choice that they have Winona who's all darkness and those two are both redheaded as well. Um, I don't have any larger commentary on that. I don't think Burton has anything specific against the population of gingers in this world, but I thought it was an interesting choice to highlight that versus the, the darkness of Winona and that sort of steep contrast going on there. Yeah. Making her seem even more like she doesn't fit in that family. Right. Yeah. The, um, it's a small detail. Um, again, actually, I, I still think some of the best costume in the movie is Otho's. Like I, everything he wears is perfect. When they go out on that weird veranda they've made, that's like sort of a house, and he's wearing this silk robe and talking about how he everything he knows as much about spiritualism as he does uh, interior design. Like, which is like a great movie moment. But um, I love that Kath, as, as far as I can tell, Catherine O'Hara almost always wears one sleeve that's black. It's weirdly not all that over the top, right? Like it's just, but like she, but it's almost like even in her lounge where she can't give up having something that's like, I'm different, right? Like I'm special and look at me. I think the the set design speaks to me even more than the costuming. The, these weird 
Tim Burton Dolly-esque dream sculptures and you know the the way that Beetlejuice sort of works through the model and the stuff that's set up there that the way that you know when he becomes the snake he's actually resting on the banister right so this sort of silly fairy tale surrealism that's running through everything in terms of the set um just that part builds atmosphere for me in a way that's really exciting to take a normal like a hyper normal house and show that with just a little twist it can turn into this other kind of playground uh is really good for me i mean he's saying i mean he's subverting the whole haunted house narrative that way too where the house actually becomes it's not necessarily the ghost but the house itself begins to crush these people or it becomes the dangerous part of it too that i really like as well the other thing i want to shout out is the music which danny elfman danny elfman's really good and you know, it just sets the tone the entire time from the beginning. You are brought into this world you know is not your own. It's, you know, surreal is the right word. And it just kind of keeps you there the entire time. And I can't think of a musical choice that didn't work in this movie. It's uh, the perfect tone for it as well. I think you're right. The music really works for me. But I I did have a little bit of a problem with the scenes when they leave the house. Um, I didn't really find them worthy of Tim Burton, who's usually so brilliant at his, you know, at his scene work and just this creating these wonderful imaginary worlds. But to me, you know, they, they leave this, the door and it looks like they're at Arches National Park in Utah with a little tremors, you know, thrown in. It just doesn't look very real to me. And I just kept thinking, did Tim Burton just have a really bad experience in Utah? And is that what's going on here? I, I, if, Tim I, Burton, I, if Tim Burton ever went to Utah, he would have a really, really bad experience. There's no chance that he would have a good experience. Totally <laughs> the, state of, the state of Utah is not welcoming to men who look like Tim Burton. I'm, I'm pretty sure there's a sign on the on the border that says no Tim Burton's allowed. You know what I mean? <laughs> I just, I just imagine him and Helena Bottom Garter just like spending a weekend in Salt Lake City seeing the sights and uh yeah <laughs> I remember going to a, a grocery store in Salt Lake and realizing that they had blacked out like they had like like blackout bars on the um the magazine racks like you would do for pornography in like other places and I was like oh shit why do they sell all this porn at the grocery store in Utah? And then I realized it was just Cosmo. <laughs> it was just, it was the same normal grocery store magazines, but they were too lustful. and had to be covered by these sensor bars. And I was like, I am in a strange world. I don't know. what's happening. So yeah, it is a, Tim Burton's also at that grocery store. It'd be pretty rough. Now I'm really sad that I never saw a film of Tim Burton's in Utah. <laughs> Because I, you know, I have to say too, I, most Hollywood splits don't bother me, but the Helena Bonham Carter, Tim Burton split was a very sad one because every time you would see that couple on the red carpet together, you just grin, you know, it was just such a wonderful moment to see that. I saw them in person. I What? Yeah. So this is one of the weirdest things that ever happened to me because it's very mundane, but it just created a loop in my brain where I was coming back from England and um, this guy is pushing a woman in a, in a wheelchair next to me. And I was just making room. Cause I was like, Oh, and I could tell she was really pregnant. Right. And I was like, Oh, pregnant woman in a wheelchair, just make room. And I look over and I was like, that's Tim Burton. You know, like, like 
his hair, I mean, he looks like he does in every interview, right? His hair is everywhere, but he's pushing Helena Bonham. And like, then it clicked who she was, right? And he's just pushing her through the thing. And <laughs> he he goes up to the customs thing ahead of us to go through. And the guard does like a double take. Like he just sits there for a second and he goes, and the guard just goes, I'm sure it's fine. It lets him through. Like that was that was their entire customs process. It was the guard being like, "Yeah, I guess welcome to America, dude." Like this seems fine. They just come through quickly, and uh, but it was one of those things where like it took me a good four minutes to sort of realize who these people were because first off, they were so ludicrous to the space that it didn't. They they seemed outside of time, and then secondly, that was the first time I'd met a famous person, and my brain was like, "Oh, they're three dimensional." Right. Like seeing the back of Tim Burton's head, you know, was wild to me. Um, Yeah. Yeah. The TSA experiences of Tim Burton must be interesting every time, you know, just just waiting for lizards to come out of his hair. I just imagine he has like 17 belts he has to take off before he goes through security. It was like that. It was like that. Like literally, I swear there was some kind of jewelry spider web thing dangling from his hair and he had like 15 rings i think this is why the guy was like i don't smuggle in whatever it's gonna take an hour to go through security just go i can't even imagine how funny that was i'm so jealous of you right now brian well i want to talk now about a performance in beetlejuice itself that i was not fond of which was michael keaton's as beetlejuice and I love Michael Keaton. I fell for him when I saw Mr. Mom as a kid. So this has been a very long love affair with Michael Keaton my entire life. But this film, I cannot stand him. I feel like if you're looking for gross and foul, why not Danny DeVito? And it's not just because of It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. I'm telling you that man is the right casting for this. So for me, I just every time Beetlejuice is on the screen, I'm just cringing. And I know part of it's the script, but I think part of it's Michael Keaton. So I was curious how you reacted to the main character here. I mean, at least the title character of the film. I, I didn't have a problem with it. I, I, you know, I, I understand. I understand why people don't like it, but, and I know he's just doing his best Jack Nicholson oppression. Just like, you know, I like the anarchy he brought to it. I like the energy he brought to it. I like, you know, it's 45 minutes in when he really makes his appearance and he just like pushes it into a different world and just makes it so much more weird, more absurd. I I actually kind of enjoyed it too. He's not on the screen enough for it to bother me. He's only in it. I bet he has like 15 minutes of screen time or something like that. He's really limited but I like the chaos he brings to it that, you know, there's going to be this trickster figure in the afterlife, you know, and that's what he is. He's a trickster figure. He is, you know, you call upon him, he is going to mess with things and you can't control it anymore. And I love that idea. Yeah, I I agree. I, I actually really love this performance in part because it makes me incredibly uncomfortable. Like he, Danny DeVito in this role, I think would have been more likable. And I don't want this guy to be likable at all. I want him to be perverted and disturbing and, you know, make you feel like he's going to compromise you from, from the jump. Like he's basically some kind of weird ghost demon. You know what I mean? And as Mike was saying, the trickster thing, like you need to know from day one that you should not be dealing with this character. 
and and yet you're sort of forced to by circumstance or by making a bad choice or whatever. I was actually really struck this time by his clowning ability. Because in addition to the Nicholson thing, he's also very clearly a sort of scary clown, right? All, all, all clown, clowns are scary. Like, I thought we agreed on that. All clowns are scary. <laughs> you know? I think it's actually illegal in North Carolina to dress up as a clown at this point, too, because <laughs> there was like it was in the South here. There was yeah. guys dressing up as clowns and going around and just like walking around and scaring the shit out of people. I think it's actually illegal now, mostly for the safety of the clown, since everyone here is armed. Yes. But go on. <laughs> no, I remember that. I remember I remember thinking, actually, when I first saw that phenomenon happening, I was like, you guys are the bravest humans I've ever seen like you're the bravest creepers on the planet because Texas is not a place to go at 2 a.m. to a convenience store dressed as a clown like and just loom creepily like you are taking your life in your hands. But um, acknowledging Mike's belief that all clowns are scary, the the traditional sort of like hobo clown look of being an outsider doing this kind of stuff. Um he's twisting that into this really strange, like, um, sorry, I'm losing my drift because all I can think about is those idiots in Texas now, but he's, uh, he's taking this sort of, um, salesman con artist thing and throwing it in there so that Beetlejuice believes you should, or doesn't care, but you should like how he looks, right? He thinks he looks good on some level. Whereas the the sort of hobo clown is supposed to be sad and, and mocked, right? So that shift there works really well for me. When I was a kid, most of the like creeper sex stuff completely went over my head, except the end of the movie where he puts his hand on the leg of the uh, woman who split in half. And then he gets slapped and then he goes to the the great hunter or whatever who's been like head shrunk it's like women huh and like i that clicked for me and i was like oh that guy is gross you know like but even as a kid that translated but now you he's marrying a child bride at the end (laughs) the subversion of that like just like oh he's gonna take it all the way here like just like be the creepiest weird i mean like he's already sexually harassing everyone else anyways but just like i'm gonna marry winona Ryder right here and get my um you know, what does he get out of this? He basically gets eternal life or something like that, or he gets to come back and just be exist all the time. He doesn't need anyone else's help. I think I couldn't follow, quite follow that plot point, but it's not totally clear. I think it's something like that. Um, he gets what he wants, right? He gets to be free to do whatever he wants. So Mike, um, what you're getting at there is that I don't think this film really does a great job of some of the sort of establishing the rules of the game, which I think we would get if we had a little bit more time in the waiting room, a little more time with the caseworker. And I love the scenes with the caseworker. So I could have used just a little bit more there. I was curious how you felt about that. I prefer they do less than more most of the time too. I think when I get bogged down in like sci-fi or fantasy it's because, or even superhero films, it's because they're explaining too much. There's too much exposition. I don't need to know everything, you know? Yeah. I, I don't know what Beetlejuice was going to get out of this too. I knew it was something bad that, you know, we didn't want him to do. I, I wish films actually explained less and just let us sort of figure it out. It doesn't have to be, there's nothing terribly confusing in this film. We're, already dropped into a weird world. So our expectations are, we don't need to know all the rules. 
we just need to sort of experience the world as we're going through. And I actually prefer that to, to over explanation of like why this, you know, orc has to do this thing with an orb or something like that. I don't really care most of the time. I think you would lose the fairy tale component too, if you explain it, like this is, there's, you know, obviously Beetlejuice is also referencing Rumpelstiltskin, right? And so why does Rumpelstiltskin want the baby? No one knows. He wants the baby. He just wants to take it, right? Um, you know, it's not entirely clear why um, David Bowie wants babies in Labyrinth either, right? But he wants them and that's what they get, right? So I, there could maybe have been one more like, you know, I can't wait to marry Winona Ryder statement. But like beyond that, I, I really wouldn't want, I don't want it to be clear at all. Um because I'm I'm afraid you lose the dream fairy tale quality completely with with any over explanation. I do love that in Looper when they bring up the time travel issue and just say like yeah 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 whatever and they just decide on screen not to deal with it. So I could definitely see your point there. I think that also goes to the fairy tale quality is also aided by the time, right? Like this is such a short movie I brought up too that you know we don't have time to really poke holes in the logic of what's going on. Right. Because it goes so quickly, because it keeps moving, because there are so few slow parts, especially after the first 10 minutes, we're just accelerating the entire time. The conversations are all I bet they're like under two pages for each scene. They're very quick. So we're just lost in the visual stimulus, the, you know, the quick jokes and the chaos that Keaton's bringing that we don't have time to think about it. And I think that's what works, right? It's basically a con game or three card money or something like that. Your eye is distracted so much that you don't actually see the queen, you know, where the queen goes. Well, I think that brings us full circle. Thank you for listening to our coming of age series. You can find our podcast on Buzzsprout as well as on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Overcast. We're on Instagram at nobody knows anything underscore PODC and Twitter at nobody knows PODC. For more on me, see my website, leahdamianwilliams.com. Check out Brian Wilkins at wilkinsbrian.com. That's Brian with an I. Brian has a new book coming out soon, A Wheel of Small Gods. And you can find info about Mike's book, The Trench Angel, at michaelkeenangutierrez.com. Thank you for listening. We hope to hear you during our next series on Jane Austen. Till we talk again. Thank you.